0: Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. Hey, good evening, everyone. Welcome along to Gateway. And my welcome to Chris's and thanks for coming out. We appreciate that you would um, share your valuable time with us. Um, Chris was saying I'm going to start a new series this evening, uh, and I want to take a, a little bit of time over the next few weeks and uh, talk about a subject that um, we popularly call the end of the age. You know, uh, I was saying this morning to the congregation uh, Uh, Sometimes, you know, when I'm thinking about what I'm doing, uh, I try and give our comms team and people that are involved a few weeks lead in, so I told them that I was going to do this subject, and then, of course, you sit down to prepare it, and honestly, I thought, what on earth have I let myself in for? This is ridiculous. I don't know that I want to do this, and it's too late to change it, and um, so here we are. We're going to talk about the end of the age. With all of the things that are going on at present, uh, a lot of people are asking, you know, is COVID-19 kind of some uh, sort of sign of the impending end of the age? And there's all kinds of conspiracy theories that are raging. I, I Watching the news just before I came down and even a political party in New Zealand, you know, the leader of the party made some comment about COVID-19 being a deliberate attempt to reduce the population. And, Somebody else, during the week, I was seeing that they were talking about perhaps COVID-19 as the uh, mark of the beast, and I'm just shaking my head and thinking, oh, my Lord, you know, and I'm about to launch into this thing on the end of the age. I want you to know that I don't even intend to go in those places. Quite frankly, there's enough anxiety and confusion without me adding my two cents on whether COVID-19 is a sign of the impending end of the age. So we won't be talking about things like that. When it comes to talking about the end of the age and what the Bible says about it, some people just would rather not. Um, even somebody this morning said to me, um, I, I, was, I, don't, I don't ever read the book of Revelation. I just find it too frightening, too scary. And there's a lot of people who would say, I don't want to talk about these things. It frightens me. There's others who would say, I don't want to talk about it because I'm just not interested. I really don't care, it'll work itself out without me giving it any thought whatsoever. And there, of course there are other people who can't talk about anything else. They've got the Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other and every event is turned into a sign of the end. And I'd like to suggest to you that it's a matter of trying to get a balance between these extremes. I don't think it's healthy to obsess over the end of the age and to read every prophetic book on the, on the shelf. But neither do I think it's healthy to actually say I don't give a hoot and I don't care about it. Um, I, I don't think it's healthy to be ignorant about it. It's a matter of finding somewhere in the midst of those two extremes. It's not a topic that we talk a lot about at Gateway. I went through my notes and my records, and the last time I talked about it was 10 years ago. And as I said this morning, tongue-in-cheek, uh, since then I've completely changed my mind, so at least I should bring you up to date with present thinking. Um, it's, uh, what I want to do over the next few weeks is pick a topic that I, I suspect most of you, if you've been around church circles for very long, you would have at least heard the phrase... Um, and, and, and for me to speak to it. The subjects that I've chosen are concepts that, I'm, as I say, I'm sure many of you will have heard of, but I'm also pretty sure that if you were pushed to explain them, you might be a little vague in your answers. And I don't say that to make you feel inadequate or substandard in some way. The truth is, some of these concepts, concepts are very difficult to grasp, and there's lots of different opinions regarding them, and it can be, quite frankly, confusing. The talks will amount to my opinion on the subject, at least my current opinion. And uh, you don't have to agree, okay? This is not one of those churches where, uh, you know, since I'm the senior pastor, I say it, you better believe it, it's my way or the highway. Um, It's just not like that, you don't have to agree. In fact, I'm sure some of the things that I'll say to you will perhaps shock you, and uh, you won't agree, and that's quite okay. If I get you thinking and delving into the scriptures, I'll consider this series uh, a success. I'll consider it worthwhile. For some of you, if you're relatively new in the faith, some of the stuff that I'll talk about will seem very difficult for you to understand. Don't worry too much. Sometimes Bible study is a bit like eating fish. You eat the flesh, or as much of the flesh as you can, and if there are bones, you put them to the side, okay? And if something's getting stuck in your throat and it's a bone, just stick it on the side. When I do teach on subjects like this, I usually make a point of saying that the goal of the teaching is never simply to titillate or to entertain, When the Bible speaks about the end of the age, which in the New Testament it does quite significantly, 1 in 18 of the verses of the New Testament are reputed to speak to the end of the age, so it's a significant topic. When it does speak to to that subject, it always does so with the idea that it will impact our present living, it will always be about things like transformation, discipleship, perseverance, okay? So it's meant to change our behavior, not just to entertain our minds. So with those as qualifications, I want to look at the first concept that has to do with the end of the age. We've called the series, What Is It About? And then I'm going to add the concept. So tonight, it's Daniel 70 weeks. What is it about that? Now, um, it doesn't take a rocket science to, to say that we're gonna be a little bit in the book of Daniel, and in particular, Daniel chapter nine. This prophecy called, generally called Daniel's 70 weeks, is considered by many to be the most remarkable prophetic utterance in the entire Bible. It has been called the watershed prophecy of the Bible. Someone else called it the prophecy of prophecies. Another scholar said it's the key that unlocks the prophetic door of the Bible. And the passage is both complex and critical. And I wanna say right off the bat, there are numerous different schools of interpretation. The reason I'm starting with this very difficult concept is the way you interpret this particular prophecy will affect pretty much everything you believe about the second coming downstream. So, if you've heard of things like the place and role of Israel, the rebuilding of the temple, the future regathering of Israel in their land, and and uh, you know the seven-year tribulation, the Antichrist, and what he, she, or it does, the abomination of desolations, the millennial rule of Christ, the rapture, you've probably heard of some of those terms at least. And I would suggest that if I sat you down and said, "What do you believe about those?", I could trace what you believe about them back to this prophecy, to Daniel chapter 9. Whatever you believe about this prophecy and the interpretation of it will affect everything downstream. So when you come to Daniel chapter 9, and I'd suggest to you that perhaps over the next week, um, you might take time to read it, okay, because uh, it would would be really helpful. I'm not going to finish this in one session. Why don't you take time over the next week just to read your way through? What you'll find is the chapter breaks into three main movements. The first movement is what I've called a prayer of preparation. It runs from verse 1 through to verse 19 of that chapter. And it's Daniel in prayer about a specific topic. Then at the end of his prayer, verses 20 through 23, the angel Gabriel comes to him and gives him this Prophecy of 70 Weeks, which is recorded in verses 24 through verse 27. Now, I mentioned this morning, my great temptation is just for the sake of time to jump straight into the prophecy that Gabriel gives, but in doing that, we miss out something incredibly important, and that's context. Uh, There's an old saying in terms of Bible study that a text without a context becomes a pretext, and it's really important to get the context of what Daniel is praying about because the angel comes in response to Daniel's prayer. So verse one starts off. It says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplication with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Now, Daniel is aware of previous prophecies. Prophet as he is, he's also aware of the lineage of the prophets, and he knows that Jeremiah prophesied a generation earlier. Daniel and his friends are now in exile in Babylon. They have been captured. Nebuchadnezzar came, destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, took them and a whole lot of others off into Babylon in captivity. And while Daniel's in captivity, he's studying the prophet Jeremiah, and he finds out that Jeremiah has talked specifically about the length of time that they would be in captivity. So in Jeremiah 25, verse 11, it says, And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. And in chapter 29, verse 10, he says, Thus saith the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. So we're not quite sure how long into the period this is. Some have said 58 years. Others have said 66 years. It's getting close to that terminus period. And Daniel, recognizing that, turns to the Lord in prayer. And he starts to fervently pray that the word of the Lord through Jeremiah would come to pass. By the way, as an aside, if you feel like God has given you prophetic words about your future, he's spoken to you about things, this is a really good model in terms of what you do about it. You don't just sit by passively and say, oh, well, we'll wait and see. You're a participant in anything that the Lord wants to do. He has given to human beings the dignity of being co-regents, co- having co-agency with him. He doesn't just say, well, I'll do it, you forget about it. He says, I'm going to do it, and here's your role. And so being aware of that, Daniel prays. Now, the great theme that pervades Daniel's prayer, and in keeping uh, with what I said to you before about context, the prophecy that follows. Okay, so Daniel's prayer, the prophecy that follows, the theme that runs through it is the covenant that Yahweh has with Israel. When you read through for your homework, Daniel chapter 9, you just put a ring about, around the words that talk about the oath, the promises, the covenant, it's the theme of Daniel's prayer. Daniel chapter 9 is the only book or the only chapter in Daniel that the name Yahweh, which is the covenant name of the God of Israel, is used. Okay? And it's used in verse 2, verse 4, verse 10, verse 13, verse 14, verse 20. That should give us an idea of what Daniel is trying to get across to us. This chapter is about God's covenant with Israel. It's a significant clue in terms of the unfolding of both the prayer and then the prophecy. So Daniel begins to pray, and in verse 4 it says, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. The covenant is the ground and confidence and the subject of his plea. Now, you, if you know the Old Testament, you'll know that Israel's history has been one long, sad story of violation of the written stipulations of the covenant that God had entered into with their forefathers. If you read Leviticus chapter 26 and Deuteronomy chapter 28, God outlines this covenant and says, listen, if you will obey the agreement that we have made now, these will be the blessings. But if you disobey, these will be the curses. So this is what Daniel is now praying through. In verse 11, he's saying, Lord, all Israel has transgressed your law and has departed so as not to obey your voice. Therefore, the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God has been poured upon us. We've disobeyed, and the curses of the broken covenant have come upon us. Verse 13, as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us. Verse 14, therefore the Lord has kept the disasters in mind and brought it upon us. Daniel is saying, Lord, we've We've violated the covenant and now we are reaping what we've sowed. We are in exile just as your word said we would be. And Daniel is now praying that as God has remembered the curses of the covenant, he would turn to them in mercy and remember the promises that he had made to those people. For in those passages, in Leviticus 26, verse 44, it says, yet all yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, when they're in exile, I will not cast them away, nor shall I abhor them to utterly destroy them and break my covenant with them. God is saying, I'm a faithful covenant-keeping God, and even though you have violated it and you have reaped the consequences of it with the land vomiting you out as I told you it would, and now you've been in this exile for near 70 years, I'm telling you, I'm still a covenant-keeping God. And in Deuteronomy 30, verse 3, the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. So recognition and appreciation of that pervasive theme of the covenant is really important because it is the context of the words of Gabriel to Daniel. Daniel. When you come, and we will in a moment, to the closing words of Gabriel's prophecy to Daniel, you'll find him speaking about a covenant. And I want to say to you, there should be absolutely no doubt as to the identity of that covenant, because it's been the theme of the whole thing up to this point. There is a clear link in the prophecy between Messiah and covenant. When Gabriel's Sharing this word, he says in verse 26, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And that word cut off is a Hebrew word, karath, and it's regularly employed for the act of ratifying a covenant by cutting. When people made covenant in those times, what they would often do is they would take an animal, slice them down the middle, put them in piles, and, and kind of make an aisle, and the members, or the people making the covenant would walk through. And what they were saying is essentially, if I violate the covenant, let me be as these animals are. You see that in Genesis 15, where God makes a covenant with Abraham. And, and the word is karath, to cut covenant. So here it says Messiah shall be karath. There'll be a cutting off, and there is an allusion in Daniel's prophecy to the idea of covenant. And then the very next verse, it talks about this person who will confirm a covenant in verse 27. So there's clear continuity in terms of context, in terms of Gabriel's word. This, this prophecy is about the covenant that God has made with Yahweh. Now you say, well, Don, you seem to be laboring this really, really um, strongly. Why, why would you be doing that? Well, I'm doing it because many people in terms of their approach to the end of the age have been influenced by an idea and by a, a, a kind of teaching that, that tells them at the end of the age, right at the very end of the age, there will be a seven-year period and in the midst of that seven-year period, three and a half years in, a, a figure called Antichrist will come, and he will, he will make a covenant with Israel, but halfway through it, he will break the covenant. He will desolate the temple in Jerusalem that has to have been rebuilt, and, and the world will be plunged into tribulation. The church, by the way, generally in that scheme of thinking, has been taken by rapture before all this happens. If you've read the Left Behind books, okay, 16 books, three movies, and a board game. <laughs> Gone out to multiplied millions of people, 65 million copies sold. If you've read The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey. If you listen to most American preachers, on, at least on, that we get on television, whether it be Chuck Missler, um, I can't even think of the other guys because I don't watch them, okay? Um, let, me find, let me find their names. Chuck Missler, David Jeremiah, Chuck Smith. There we go. There's a couple of names for you. If you watch Christian TV, <clears throat> enough said. That's that stuff. All of that, by the way, all of that is based on Daniel chapter 9. And I want to suggest to you, it's really, really flimsy. They say that the covenant that Gabriel talks about is not the covenant that Daniel had been praying about, but is a completely different covenant, which will be made between completely different people in a completely different age. And I want to just say, from the basis of context and continuity, that is a massive jump. And I don't think it's warranted. Let me read you the prophecy, okay? Let's, let's read it together. It runs from verse 24 to verse 27, and it starts off 70 weeks, or some translations have seventy sevens. The weeks that Daniel's talking about here are not Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, okay? So get that out of your head. The, the sevens, the weeks, are, are groups of seven. So, so if we had an English word, it would be heptads, which is a group of seven. So Gabriel says seven groups of seven or seven heptads are decreed for your people and your holy city in order to, these are the things that will happen in this time period. Transgression will be finished. To put an end to sin to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. These are the things that Gabriel says will happen within this period of 70 heptads. And then it goes on. No one understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and with a trench, but in times of trouble. After 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with the many for one heptad. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offerings, and on the wing of abominations shall be the one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate." You can read that and then wonder, Don, why on earth did you do this? That's what I was thinking when I read, I just, oh my goodness. Okay, my plan, best laid plans of mice and men, is to go as clearly and as simply as I can through this text. And believe me, neither clarity nor simplicity come easy. But I will try to do my best to unfold for you what is without doubt the prophecy of prophecies in the Bible, Maybe later I will go back and go through the popular teaching that, that if you've read Left Behind or been associated with, with uh, that kind of teaching um, and, and explain why I believe it's misguided. Now, you, you might think, Don, that sounds incredibly presumptuous of you. Um, Chuck Missler, um, Chuck Smith... David Jeremiah, and just about any other American preacher that I've heard, these people believe this stuff, and you are saying no. (laughs) Don't you think that's a little presumptuous? Well, possibly, possibly. Um, However, I'm deeply convinced that they are barking up the wrong tree. In fact, I would go further than that and say I don't think they're even in the right jungle. And I'm sorry if that sounds presumptuous, but I just think the popular dispensational view that dominates our bookshelves, it dominates the airwaves, is, is misguided. I I know of somebody who went into a Christian bookshop relatively recently, and they went to the prophecy section. It must have been a rather large bookshop, and they counted 117 books on prophetic themes. And they went through them one by one, and they said 102 of the 117 books had this dispensational late great planet Earth left behind teaching. You know, that at the end of the age, there will be the seven-year period. Halfway through it, Antichrist will come, break covenant with Israel, and tribulation will come, and then the end of the age. All based on that prophecy. And I'm suggesting to you that there is no basis whatsoever to change horses midstream and make that covenant mean something completely different from everything that Daniel has been talking to To this point. So the angel says, 70 heptads have been determined or decreed or marked off for you and your people. I think what Gabriel is talking there without going to reasons why, because it would just take us too long, are 70 groups of seven years. So what he's talking about are cycles of 490 years. That would immediately make sense to Daniel because Israel was just coming off a period of uh, captivity. They'd been in captivity for 70 years as a result of 490 years of disobedience. And you say, well, how do you know that, Donald? What well, says that in 2 Chronicles 36 verse 21. Thus the word of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah came true, that the land must rest for 70 years to make up for the years when the people refused to observe the Sabbath. In Israel's calendar, every seventh year was to be a year where the land was to lay fallow. God promised that in the sixth year, he'd give them enough crops to go through that year, but every seventh year, the land was to be freed and to be fallow. Well, the children of Israel decided, you know, we get double in the sixth year. If we plant on the seventh year, we're gonna do really well. And that's what they did. They didn't obey. And so for 490 years, the land did not get its rest. And God says, I'm gonna collect all of those Sabbaths in one foul swoop and for 70 years the land will lie desolate to make up for the years you never gave its Sabbath. So for 490 years of disobedience, I'm gonna take those 70 Sabbath years and you will spend them in exile. Suddenly Gabriel is now talking about another cycle of 490 years and it would have made sense to, to, to Daniel. Actually, some scholars talk about God's dealings with Israel coming in cycles of 490 years. You say, well, why would that be, Don? Well, every 50th year, though, with the 49 years, then there would be not just a year of Sabbath, but a, a what we called a jubilee year. It happened every, at the end of every 49 years. So 490 years is... 10 jubilee years. And it seems like symbolically God dealt with the people in that way. So from the birth of Abraham to the Exodus, apparently 490 years. From the Exodus to the dedication of Solomon's temple, another 490. From the dedication of the temple to the decree to restore Jerusalem, 490 years. And here's now the angel saying there's gonna be another cycle of 490 years. Now, I don't plan to examine that either to affirm or refute it. I'm just pointing out that some scholars say that. So here's now the angel Gabriel announcing that the next cycle of 490 years will bring Israel to a significant place in the purposes of God. And he says, when or before this 490 years finishes, before there is 77s or 70 heptads completed, these things will take place. There will be a finish of transgression, there will be an end of sin. It, we, there will be reconciliation for iniquity everlasting righteousness will be brought in vision and prophecy will be sealed up and a most holy person or place will be anointed now the people that take the daniel's prophecy and push it right to the end of the age say none of those things happened None of those things have happened. All of those things must happen at the end of the age. So that's one reason why they break the prophecy up, take one period of 70 years and say, there's something, something, this has got to go to the end because none of those things have happened. Well, I would like to suggest they've all happened. They are closely connected and they're linked by the conjunction and. And the language is all drawn from the work of a high priest which took place on the most holy day of Israel's year, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And his work, the high priest's work, was the foreshadowing of the ministry and work of our ultimate high priest that the book of Hebrews talks about, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that those six clauses all have to do with the work of Messiah, and what the angel is saying is in the next cycle of 490 years of 70 heptads, the Messiah will come and he will deal with the clauses, those six issues. And it will happen by him being cut off in verse 26 of the prophecy the, 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 these Clauses will happen because Messiah is cut off. And cut off is, as I said to you before, terminology that always means death by judgment or violence. It's the vocabulary of a violent, penal death. Without doubt, at least in my humble opinion, those clauses have to do with Messiah, the work of Jesus on the cross. As I say, some, of the, some people say, well, none of them have happened in their fullness, therefore it must be the end of time. It won't be until the second coming of Jesus. But I think that completely misses the reality of what we talk about when we say, now but not yet. When Jesus talked about the kingdom of God coming, he talked about it in two ways. He said, the kingdom is here. It's among you. It's working. When I cast out demons by the finger of God, you need to know the kingdom has arrived. And then on other occasions, he would talk about a kingdom that is yet to come. So he would talk about the fact that it was here and operating, and yet in its fullness, it still waited consummation. And nearly all of the truths that we talk about in terms of Jesus' work on the cross are that way. He has started something in the here and now. And it's now here and operating. We yet await its fullness We know that Jesus, by virtue of his crucifixion and resurrection, he introduced into the middle of the age the new creation. Everything that the Jews were expecting to happen at the end of the age, Jesus brought it into the middle of the age. The resurrection of the dead that they all thought would be at the end of the age happened to someone in the middle of the age, and he now has introduced new creation. It's here, and it started, but it still awaits its fullness. When Paul said, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation, the he is is in italics, which it, it's, it means it's been supplied by the translators. So what Paul said is, if any man be in Christ, new creation. You're it. You and I, as believers in Jesus, are the signs that new creation is here and happening. It's the now, but not yet. And so to say, none of these things, these six clauses have happened yet, they must all await their fullness, is like saying the kingdom of God hasn't arrived, it's coming. Well, yes, it's, it's coming, but it's here. Let me, let me illustrate what I'm trying to say. In 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 10 we read, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Jesus has destroyed death. Question: Has death been totally destroyed? Answer: Yes and no. I sound like a politician, don't I? Yes. Jesus' death on the cross dealt with the problem of death. That's what Hebrews says. By embracing death and taking it into himself, he destroyed the devil's hold on death and freed all of us who cower through fear facing death. Yes, he's dealt with death. He broke its power. He rose from the grave. Yes, he's dealt with death and he's destroyed it. Has that happened in its fullness? No, not yet. And 1 Corinthians 15 says, the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. So yes and no. It's here, but it's yet to come in its fullness. And when you come to those six clauses that, Messiah, that Gabriel says, Messiah will come and he will be cut off within this specified period and he will deal with these things. I wanna to say to you, he's dealt with those things. We await the full consummation of them, but he started it. And I want to tell you to make a strong case for these six clauses being the work of Messiah at the cross and not something that we are going to wait for at the end of the age. Look at Daniel chapter 9 and compare it with Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is the story of the suffering servant. It's the, it's the most powerful prophetic proclamation that Jesus would come. And if you look at the language of Daniel 9 and Isaiah 53 and compare them, it's amazing. Daniel 9 says that one of the things that he will do is finish transgression. Isaiah says he was wounded for our transgressions. Daniel says he will make an end of sin. Isaiah said his soul was made an offering for sin. Daniel says he will make reconciliation for iniquity. Isaiah says he will be bruised for our iniquity. Daniel says, he'll be cut off. Isaiah says, he will be cut off. Daniel says, but not for himself. Isaiah says, not for himself, but for my people. So let me go through those very briefly, those clauses. Firstly, um, he will make uh, or he will finish transgression. Judicially, provisionally, Jesus dealt with that at the cross. Now, not everybody lives in that reality, but in God's purposes, they have been dealt with. As Isaiah said, for the transgression of my people, he was stricken. He dealt with that issue. You know, on the cross, as Jesus is hanging there, John chapter 19, verse 30, he says, it is finished. I wonder what was going through his mind. I wonder if he's just thinking, I'm done, I've had it all, I'm out of here. I don't think so. I think he was saying It is finished. Everything that was planned. The father's purpose has finished. And the father's purpose was to finish transgression. And when he said, it is finished, I think he had that in mind. The second thing is he will make an end of sin. Now, it's very plain from Scripture that it's Messiah who makes an end to sins. And on Calvary, he offered the one sacrifice for sin, bearing the sins of many. That's why John says in his epistle in John chapter 1, uh, 1 John chapter 3, and you know that he was manifest to take away our sins. Hebrews 3, uh, 1 verse 3 says, when he had himself purged our sins, he made an end provisionally of sin. He made reconciliation for iniquity, And thirdly. That same phrase, by the way, is used in the book of Leviticus and is, is translated to make atonement for. It was the ministry of Messiah to make atonement. Romans chapter five says, for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we will be saved by his life. It's he that makes reconciliation. Number four, bring in everlasting righteousness. Listen, this age-lasting righteousness could only be brought in when transgression, sin, and iniquity had been made an end of and reconciliation had been effected. When Christ died on the cross, this kind of righteousness was made available to all men. He took my sin that I might have his righteousness, 2 Corinthians says, and if righteousness has been brought in and that righteousness is everlasting, then this is the work of Messiah and it is something that he's already done. In Romans chapter 3, verse 21, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. Messiah has done these things. Okay. We await their fullness, but it is here it has started. To seal up, number five, vision and prophecy. That simply means to fulfill the vision of the prophets, to confirm prophetic revelation. Old Testament vision and prophecy all pointed to Messiah, and he came to fulfill the vision and prophecy of the Old Testament. Acts chapter three says, but those things which Christ foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that Christ would suffer, he thus has fulfilled, or he has thus fulfilled. We often sing that song, you know, all his promises are yes and amen. And we tend to imagine that God's promises to us are yes and amen. And I don't have too much of a problem with that, except that that isn't what Paul's saying in the passage that it's found. He's saying all of the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. They all find their focal point in him. He came to fulfill the prophetic word. And finally, number six, there's an anointing of a most holy. Now, it's difficult to know whether a holy place is intended or a holy person is intended in the Hebrew language, but I'd suggest to you it doesn't matter because Jesus is both. If it's a holy place, then it's talking about anointing a temple. And Jesus, in John chapter 2, looks at the present Herod temple, Herod's temple and says, you knock it down, you destroy this temple in three days, I will restore it. And everybody laughed at him. But the disciples said he was talking about the temple of his body. He is the temple. He came, it says in John chapter 1, verse 14, and tabernacled among us. He pitched a tent, a temple filled with the glory of God. He was it. And if it's talking about anointing a temple, it's talking about him. And if it's talking about anointing a person, it's him. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went about doing good and healing all those who are oppressed of the devil, it says in Acts chapter eight. He's the anointed one. Those six things predicted by Gabriel were to be accomplished within the marked-off period of 70 weeks, 70 heptads, 490 years. And we'll see next week that they were. You know when it says he confirms a covenant and in the midst of the last heptad his life is taken, he's cut off. John's gospel tells us Jesus' ministry was three and a half years in length. And in the midst of the heptad, in the midst of the seven, he gets cut off. Friends, this is not talking about some different covenant switched from the covenant that Daniel was praying about, to suddenly some end time covenant where some completely different person is making an agreement with the people of Israel in a rebuilt temple. And where it says that in the midst of the time, um, you know, the, the sacrifices and offerings will be stopped and this character will come in and desolate Israel and the whole world will be plunged into uh, a, you know, a, a time of intense tribulation. All of that, the whole of that scenario is based on this passage. And as I said to you, when you read that passage, it clearly is talking about a covenant that's continuous through Daniel's prayer and and into Gabriel's words. And, And it was fulfilled in the coming of the Messiah, who in the midst of the last seven is cut off and he stops sacrifices and oblations book of Hebrews talks about that. You don't have to offer goats and, and animals anymore. It's, it's finished. God is saying that has stopped now. If you have read Left Behind and uh, kind of, you know, you're bought into it, well, can I just suggest to you, it's a racingly good story, apparently. I haven't read it. But people love the story. I guess that's why it sold 65 million copies. But I'd like to suggest to you that it's great fiction and that it's not strongly based in the Scriptures. And as we'll go on in the coming weeks, I think you'll see even stronger reasons to say, wow, that throws a lot of what I think about the end times right up in the air. And quite frankly, it should. I was raised with Left Behind. Okay, my, my, when I got saved, I had the Bible in one hand and the late great Planet earth in the other. Honestly, you know, it was a multi-million dollar bestseller and we gobbled it up. And we had our movies and our stories and, and, and so, I mean, I believed it because everybody believed it. I, I'd, I'd never had any reason to be, to think otherwise until I started to read a bit deeper, until I started to go, really? Where does it say that? You know, the seven-year tribulation, it doesn't mention it anywhere in the Bible, anywhere except that one passage where it says in the last heptad, he will be cut off in the midst of it. There isn't another passage in the whole of the Bible that talks about seven years of tribulation. But you would swear that the Bible was filled with it from start to finish by the way it's talked about, by the way it's spoken. Everybody just believes it. And I want to suggest to you, we need to be a little more thorough in our thinking. You know, I said to you before, and I'm, I'm sorry, this is going to sound as presumptuous as I sounded before, and I don't mean it to, but um, while this teaching is incredibly popular, particularly in the US, it is not it is not believed, it's not the strongest position in terms of scholarly approach to the Book of Daniel. I'm sorry, it's just not. I'm sure many of you have heard of people like N.T. Wright, Gordon Fee, you know, and a dozen one other people who are real scholars, and they would say of that approach, they say it kindly, and I'd like to try and say it as kindly as I can too, but they shake their head and say, nah not even close, and yet it is so profoundly believed, particularly in the U.S., that it has affected American foreign policy. Strong, uh, if you, if you I, I'm, not, I'm not a politician and I don't want to get into too deep a water here, but I'm, I'm stunned by America's approach to Israel on the basis of, this is what the Bible says. And I'd like to suggest to you that the Bible doesn't say that at all. And yet, the American church has swept into this. I was joking this morning and said, man, I'd never preach this in America because I'd be thrown out. I remember even going to the Philippines, which of course is very strongly influenced by, the, by, by American theology. And, and they asked me to talk on the last days and so I did. <laughs> And uh, you know my, the pastor, who's a dear friend of mine and remains so, just said, "We have never heard of this before. This this is new." Because I suggested, you know, things like the rapture might not happen seven years before the tribulation and all that stuff. It's just it's just it's supposition, and so much of it is based on that prophecy. And as I said, when you just lay that prophecy out and go, "Has it been fulfilled?" The answer is yes, it has. Okay, and, and we have no reason to be anticipating a seven-year period of tribula- tribulation at the end of the age. It's just not there. Sorry. It's in Left Behind. And it's in Lake Great Planet Earth. And Chucks talk about it. It's not there. Okay? So over the next couple of weeks, I'm going to show you why it's definitely not there. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website gatewaychurch.org.nz